the Lord. If he doesn't do another thing for me, to, I'm going to scoot up where the table is, if that's all right. If he doesn't do anything else for me today, it's been enough. Does anybody need to be anointed? I'll just add this since it's an opportune moment, but based on what I see in James chapter 5, where we see the instruction about anointing in the church, uh, looks to me like if you have a need, you can just call on the elders to come and to anoint you. A lot of times I'll wait until the Sabbath day. I don't want to put anybody out, but I'm just letting you know if any of you guys need me or... I'm sure uh, Michael, Brian, you can let us know. You don't have to wait until the Sabbath if you need to be anointed. Uh, just by way of announcements, uh, I want to thank you all for praying for me. I knew you were. I'm sorry that it comes up so often that I'm under the weather. I tell Blake on occasion that I don't know one more thing that I can do. I could probably eat a little better, but I work on that so hard, man. You have no idea. I've tracked every morsel that's gone in my mouth now for almost, I don't know, like eight years. I have a record. And I pay close attention to it. I try to eat right and exercise and do the right spiritual things. But my body just doesn't cooperate with me always. And an update, uh, I did have a nerve conduction study. And they found that in addition to the impingement at the shoulder and the wear and tear on that joint, that... I also have a severe carpal tunnel. So they're going to fix that when they fix the shoulder. They're going to replace the shoulder and they'll uh, fix the problem at my wrist at the same time. Please continue to pray about that. Um, I've been back and forth with my surgeon's office. Uh, it's been frustrating. It's probably an accurate word, but let's just say challenging and stay on the positive side of things. Been challenging getting in contact with the people who keep his calendar. Took a good two weeks for them to uh, finally return my call on scheduling. And so I spoke to them this past week. What I was shooting for is February the 1st, which would give me the six weeks that I'm gonna be immobile uh, during our slowest time doing lawns, which is ideal. And so when his office contacted me back finally, he said, well, we think we could do it probably in the middle of March. And I said, man, that is not going to work. I don't think we can do that. That's a busy time. Uh, he said, well, he's just not going to be available. And so right or wrong, I said, we'll see if somebody else in the practice can handle it because there's more than one person who can do uh, total shoulder replacement. So y'all please continue. I need wisdom to know how to decide and I just trust that the Lord is uh, in that. Is there any update on you? You said you had a CAT scan last Sabbath. I go back Monday, and I guess it's a final consult. We'll schedule, I guess. Do you have an idea about when you want to schedule for? Or does, does it matter to you? Um, probably schedule in March. Okay. I'm sure they can work it out. If, if this group doesn't get with it, I'm going to find out who you're going to and go see them. They might have it a little more together in Little Rock than they do in Conway. I think, I think she's wanting to. I think they'll try to do it like quick. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's in February, but I'll probably push it to March. Yeah. Well, we'll all keep on praying. Uh, I think I mentioned to some of you a couple of Sabbaths ago that uh, I got word that John is having a hard time. He just... 
understandably is shaken. He's not communicating with anybody really what's going on with him emotionally, but uh, the word is that he just kind of holds up in his room and he doesn't really talk to uh, Granny or Sherry or uh, Jody when he goes over there. So am I talking too quietly? Like like that ever happened? Two things I don't have to ask. Am I talking too little? Am I talking too quietly? Constantly having trouble with that. Uh, but when I saw Sherry at uh, Walmart, she just said he needs to heal. And I get that, you know, we all got to go through whatever process we got to go through. Um, I got confidence in God, obviously. He's seen us all through. I find it very encouraging to look back and think of the dark moments that each one of us has seen. Some of it I know about, some of it I don't. Uh, but God's always been faithful. And so I trust that he'll do the same. Um, Big said his co-worker is still out from work, I think. Yeah, he, I don't know he's probably got his hands full just yeah. taking yeah. care of stuff. I always found that whenever I was really down, you know, you need some sort of a appointed communications person to let everybody know. Oh, who's he work for? There's a company called Mm-hmm. That now. He works for I gotcha. So, he's got a Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. just keep on praying for him and if you get any updates let us know elizabeth i think posted that her friend's baby was thriving yes hallelujah That's fantastic. I don't think uh, we could ever review too much the answers that the Lord gives to our prayers. I think that's one of the things that makes keeping track valuable. I notice when I go through the Psalms how often David is going back and recounting the times that God has delivered him and then how he delivered all of those in the Old Testament. Because it's true at all times. It's just hard to remember that whenever life is difficult. Are there any more uh, updates, announcements, prayer requests? I think that uh, I've had a nerve situation for a long time. I yeah. Tried to figure out what's going on. And I wanted to get an MRI, but it's now in dollars. It's very expensive, so um, my insurance that I got this year now is going to 
Praise the Lord. Yeah. How long has that been with the sciatica? Okay. You sleep? Do you sleep? It just bothers you when. Yeah, it's helpful for nerve pain, but it makes you loopy a little bit. Yeah, but I kind of like that. Some of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll continue to pray. That's an answer to prayer for sure. I'm. No, of course, and I understand that. I'm learning about nerve pain. I've had all kinds of pain that I've dealt with, but I've never had an inflamed nerve before, and uh, it's a whole other thing for sure. And I know you want relief from that. Well, praise the Lord. Yes. Is that the one that was on your Facebook this morning? It's called Eyewitness Bible. It's sort of reminded me of... I just watched a couple, yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the show that we watch about Jesus? The Chosen. the Chosen. It sort of reminded me of that in that the production values are really high. I thought it was cool that it's coming from a first-person perspective, like it's Paul talking about, well, I knew Matthew and... Yeah, I liked what I saw of that. There's a lot more where that came from. I don't know that it ever gets old. Like, I love all of the augmentations, you know. I just try to not neglect the... I try to keep it about 80% Bible and about 20% commentary. I fell into that very early after I was called into the ministry because... I guess it's just the way that I'm built. I felt like, well, I should go to seminary. I got to get educated about, you know how I am. Like, I want to know everything about everything. So I always felt like I didn't know anything. And then that was a little intimidating when I would go to like speak or minister. And so when I would read the Bible, I read all these commentaries and like one verse in the Bible can take you 10 days worth of comment. And most of it is nonsense. I'm sorry. Most of it doesn't matter at all. Like it's away from the main point. It could talk about Jesus and the woman at the well, which is just screaming at you about how he loves you even when you're unlovely and how he can redeem a life that has just been utterly ruined and all of that and so beautiful. And they'll talk about now the kind of sandals that he wore were like, oh, come on, man. But I love all of those resources. Okay, so if you will, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. I think last time we made it through to verse 4. Um, <laughs> right. I'll just be... But the stuff that was in there was good, so I'm glad. Uh, we'll pick up at verse 4 this time, and I'll try to make it through uh, verse 12. We'll just see how that goes. So just to recap a little bit you know we talked about John the Baptist and the fact that he came preaching the message that he was preaching how it was prophesied in Isaiah 40 not quite a thousand years beforehand which is just another evidence that God knows what's going on and he's powerful enough to make stuff happen even when everything gets sideways in between it never ceases to amaze me 
And we opened up, we were looking at the genealogy, and inside that genealogy, you got people who are given to harlotry and people who commit adultery. And, you know, like David, I think he was guilty of murder. I don't know how, you, right? Did you wash the wine, David? No, not yet. Is it good? Okay, you're smiling. <laughs> it was really bad, but it makes me smile, though. Uh, all of those people making all of those mistakes, and yet God did exactly what he said he would do exactly at the time that he said he would do it. And he revealed it even, like John's life, God knew it. And when we look at Ephesians and you start realizing that God knew about your life way before he ever made you, before he ever made the universe, he already knew. He had a place for you. He put you together the way that pleased him most and suited his purposes best. And the things that we look at and we're like, man, it's all getting out of control, like what was happening in Noah's day, or like what was happening at the Tower of Babel, or like what was happening when Israel was getting carried off into uh, captivity and would refuse to put away their idols. You know, you, you would just think if you're reading this, like there's no way that God's going to do all the things that he said he would do, and yet he does it exactly on time, exactly the way that he said, even down to the point of where miraculously uh, giving John the Baptist birth to his two faithful parents, uh, they had given up on giving birth to a child, and God made that a miracle, all the way to having a foretype. Elijah was a foretype. Jesus said it later. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So that's just a witness of how faithful God is, how he knows everything, and how he's powerful enough to get it done, which eliminates the need for us to worry. So I'll pick up at verse 4 and just read through 12, and then we'll get into it piece by piece. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham to our father. Well, I'd say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here in verse 4, what John, when he started his ministry, I don't know, that, did we go over last time that he took a Nazarite vow, which is a special thing? I'll just uh, reiterate. He took a Nazarite vow, and what that meant is that you didn't cut your hair. It's like Samson. You didn't cut your hair, but you wore it up in seven braids. You didn't touch anything that was unclean. There were, it was a very strict standard, even among those people who were priests in the temple. Now, you know, John's dad was a priest in the temple. He was one of the courses. Uh, there's a sense in which you could look at John as the last of that priesthood 
before God removed his presence from the temple. And it literally uses the same language when it talks about John, him finishing his course. They served in courses, uh, each one of the courses of the high priest, they were divided into 48, if I remember correctly, would uh, serve a couple of weeks at the temple. Um, so he had a very strict standard that he was called into, and that was his personal calling. Uh, and so as a result, he lived a very stoic life, wearing camel's hair and a, a leather belt that... He was, he was dressed like a guy who was living in the woods all the time. All right, so if you look at him, you certainly wouldn't think he was fancy. It's not great. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you saw Bear Grylls or something making his way in Alaska or somewhere. He'd have like elk skins and bear skins. This is the kind of thing. He's living uh, a life of deprivation in a way. Obviously, he didn't have a lot of uh, tasty food. He's eating locusts and wild honey and now when you look at that and he's outside of the city he's outside of the system and he's calling everybody out for repentance one of the things that i find instructive about this is like there's a sense in which there are whole segments of christianity that look at the idea of being holy and serving the lord with all of your heart and they think you can measure it by how much you give up uh, I remember how Donald Cowan, he kind of came from that background. They call him holiness, or I think that's one name for one group like that. But their whole deal is they know they're holy because they don't watch movies and they don't wear this and they don't listen to that. And they live these lives of, uh, of sort of stoic denial. They're not, you won't see them at lots of social gatherings and parties and that sort of thing. And you're going to laugh at me, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. That's literally a question I've had uh, since everything sort of got shaken apart was, okay, so how do I need to dress then? Because I don't want people to think I've got a casual attitude about the Lord. I don't. I'm serious about it. I've given my life to it. I've been called. I've made decision after decision where it's between him and whatever the other thing is, whether that's climbing a corporate ladder or uh, chasing money or whatever the thing was. Many times over my life, I've been offered a choice between do you serve the Lord or are you going to serve mammon in some way? Uh, and it's difficult it, because there's a sense in which you want to apply what Paul said, which is I become all things to all men so that by all means I might win some. So you don't want to dress in such a way that uh, you're impeding the people around you. You know, you don't want to make uh, a stumbling block for them. Uh, but here you've got John the Baptist. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Like he's ahead of us. <laughs> we got filled later. He was filled from birth. He had a commission from God. And it was his calling to live this really strict really rigid life and everybody that saw him knew beyond a doubt john the baptist is holy that's one thing we know this guy is a hundred percent committed uh, but i think it's interesting let's just go to chapter uh, 11 quickly 
because Jesus has some stuff to say about that. And the contrast could not be more stark between Jesus and John the Baptist. So it says, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. He said, well, what'd you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So he's addressing this idea. Well, he's some kind of a wild madman out there just shouting about salvation and baptizing people and, you know, living a, a life of self-denial. And he's, he's basically saying, you're not going to find soft clothing on a guy who lives out there. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what would you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, we did look at that last time. I just want you to note one thing. Jesus is quoting Isaiah. One of the things you can do if you're trying to figure out whether or not you can trust the Bible is you can go to the person of Jesus. So the person of Jesus, it is recorded, believed in the Old Testament. He believed in Adam and Eve. And you can do your research and find out, did Jesus live? Was he crucified? Was he raised from the dead? There's all sorts of evidence. It's a veritable mountain of evidence. And so on the basis that he claimed himself to be God and then proved it by having God raise him up from the dead, not like every other time. I mean, you could point at Lazarus if you want, but Jesus raised Lazarus, right? But who raised Jesus, though? I mean, Paul laid over Eutychus, right? And it was Elisha, I believe, that laid over the, the widow's son, right? But who raised Jesus, though? See, God himself raised Jesus. It is by itself the only time that a person ever just raised himself up. He literally said that. He said, I got power to lay my life down. I got power to take it back up again. Nobody else could say that. And that is very strong evidence that he is who he claimed to be. A guy who says, look, I've conquered death and I can give you hope of eternal life. You can believe that guy if you see him beaten past all recognition, stuck in a hole for three days, and then for 40 days how he appeared, sometimes to individuals and sometimes to small groups, sometimes to very large groups. And this is well attested. It's not just in the Bible. It's also in peripheral recorded histories, and it's there for us all to examine. But once you get that straight, and you can be sure that he is who he claims to be. And the question becomes, well, okay, the New Testament, sure, that's for us. But what about the Old Testament? Well, the one who has all that credibility, he's quoting the Old Testament. And he's saying, he's, he's reaching back to Isaiah. And the truth is, it was Jesus who was inspiring Isaiah through the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. It was Jesus who recorded through David the psalm that talked about what would happen to him on the cross. He knew. So it's just an evidence of what it says in the beginning of John, you know, that he's God. So it's important to me to note that he's quoting the Old Testament. He himself believed the Old Testament was valid and accurate. That solves a lot of problems. You know, I think of those people who say, well, you can't really figure you know, what the Sabbath was. Uh, they were taken into captivity from in Babylon and people lost it. Well, okay, you're good at math. I see that. You know, kudos to you and all the research. But we've got a pretty good record from the time of Jesus. 
There's good evidence to believe he knew what he was talking about. And so we know what day he kept. So I, all of your math, that's beautiful, but you can't escape this truth. So he's saying that's who John the Baptist was. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a huge statement. He's saying there's nobody greater. And you can go all the way back. Like, that's just a way that they would talk. It's the idiom. But basically he's saying there's nobody greater. Now, anybody in the kingdom of God, which is what he says next, is greater. But, of course, everybody glorified is greater than anybody not yet glorified. You know, that's always true. But uh, that's, a, that's high praise to John and the way that he was living his life and the power of his ministry. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. All the prophets, all the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And so here's another evidence of how, how complex a thing God is doing and how it operates exactly on time, that he can create types and four types, just like he did with himself. How many people are you looking at? Don't you know David is a type of Jesus? You know, Don't you see that Moses is a type? Joshua, even by his name, same name. He's a type. And one of the things we learn from that is that, I mean, not only does God call his shot, but he makes it so complicated, you know, nobody but him could have done it. But even more than that, he gets it done exactly on time, exactly the way that he said that he's going to do it. And for me, I mean, that brings me a lot of comfort. Well, frankly, when this country looks like it's going crazy, when cities are on fire, people are rioting. It helps me to know that in the days that, say, the Apostle Paul was writing, it was worse. Nero was a lot worse than whoever, like way worse than Biden, way worse than Obama. Also, you learned that you can't put your confidence in men. You know, uh, when I think back about Jimmy Carter, he was a very conscientious man. I mean, he doesn't know everything, but he's serious about his faith. Always has been. He conducted himself at a high moral standard. There's no scandal associated with him, not even the hint of one. I mean, he was a little naive to the point where they asked him, have you ever committed adultery on your wife? He said, yes, I guess technically I have. Do you remember that? Because the Bible says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, now that is not a politician's answer, uh, but as good as a man as he was and well-intentioned as he was, Man, the nation suffered under him. The economy suffered. I remember what it was like on TV every night. Hostages sitting over there in Iran, night after night, sitting in line. You couldn't get gas. Gas was through the roof price-wise, and you had to wait until, like, alternate Tuesdays or until a certain uh, number that matched your tag to go buy gas. Uh, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> Yeah, it was right before Reagan. Yeah. That yeah. Was the gas lines that were ridiculous, yes. Yeah, it was crazy long. But it does remind me of this time in a way because it almost, it seemed, the national morale was really low. You know, you didn't you didn't find people that were excited about being Americans or 
I mean, people had lost their jobs. Inflation was running away. It was just a terrible time. We were losing the pride of our power. Even though Carter was a military man, he served in the Navy. He was an engineering officer who had gone to the Naval Academy on an atomic submarine. Smart guy, capable guy. He's terrible at his job. Sadly, though, that's what I'm saying. You can't put your confidence in men. You can't put your confidence in a guy like David being in office. It's not a guarantee. A lot of people died under David because David sinned. And what that tells you at every iteration is that there's no hope in a man. I mean, we've learned that a little bit. You know, it's painful to recognize it, but you can't put confidence in the arm of flesh. But it's all pointing at Jesus, always was. He's the only solution that there is. He's the only one that could stand up, that would really be a righteous king, a holy king, that wouldn't have failings that would hurt his people, wouldn't abuse and take advantage of them. And so uh, in the same way that there were four types of Jesus, there were four types of John the Baptist, and there'll be another type yet. In the end, there's going to be another one that comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah and does an end time work whenever that is. So he says that uh, the prophets prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah. Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John came neither eating and drinking, and they say he has a demon. So they're looking down at him. Oh, look at that simpleton. He's never slept in a house, I don't think. He just lays out there in the woods and he dresses like some kind of hillbilly hick and he screams and he dunks people in the water and they didn't want to hear the gospel from him. And then the contrast is the son of man came, verse 19, eating, drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the contrast is stark between how Jesus came doing his ministry and how John came. They had two different callings. It's the same Holy Spirit. I mean, to me, I know I started out talking about how do you dress. I've dressed all kinds of ways. Like, I've worn really nice suits. That was the standard in Worldwide, you know. So every guy, like, there are pictures of me as just a little kid in those old, stupid, ugly, 1970s, big, orange and brown colored suits and stuff like that. But that was the standard. We dressed up. The Pharisees always dressed up. Looks to me like, um, if you look at this, the contrast with Jesus, Jesus preached in the synagogues, in the big cities, in the temple complex. He would teach there. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. John the Baptist wore the equivalent of a burlap sack, camel's hair, leather belt, rough clothes, rough environment. Uh, Jesus, he wore a tunic that was so nice, the Romans wouldn't even tear it up. You know, they were splitting the, after he died or while he was being crucified. They were casting lots for his garment. And they noticed his tunic, tunic, which is rare, that was woven throughout. Most of them had seams. You know, if you're going to build a shirt, you need seams for the sleeves, seams for the... But they wove this one. It was valuable. So Jesus dressed up. John dressed down. Same God called them both. One, I mean, you see what I mean? And Jesus' evaluation of John was not that John wasn't more holy. One more holy than the disciples. He had a different calling. And, you know, Jesus wasn't wrong, obviously, for dressing better, although he didn't dress so well that he stood out, obviously, because 
he had to be, John, uh, Judas had to kiss him to point him out. He looked so much like everybody else. So it's not like a televangelist maybe or something like that, you know, not quite that nice. But one of the things that I derive from that uh, is that God himself knows what your calling is and you have a conscience that will guide you about how you do those kinds of things, what motivates you to do the way that you do. And frankly, we can't tell from the outside whether somebody is like, are you more holy because you don't watch TV or someone less holy because they do? Well, we don't know, man. The evidence is from the Bible that you can be the kind of guy that's at parties. You can be the kind of guy that drinks or you can be the kind of guy that doesn't and doesn't do that. And you can both be fulfilling your calling, both be, well, I mean, you're not going to get a better compliment than what Jesus gave about John, that there was none greater. And frankly, I think what he says at the end is telling. Like It looks to me like God has different people who fulfill different, their ministries, say, in different ways. Because he's leaving men without excuse for one thing. You know what I mean? Like, that's what he said. We piped to you, you wouldn't dance. We played a dirge, you wouldn't mourn. Like, you know, some of us may represent uh, the more stoic side of things. That's all right. That's what the Lord called you to. The Lord knows. You know, right? You fulfill that. And maybe a person that won't respond to your stoicism will respond to somebody like Maddie who likes to party. But genuinely, I don't know if any of you have had this thought, but it's something that I've chewed on a fair amount which is, I think that I've been a little too concerned about what other people might think, you know? You can't tell what my heart is. Like, I don't want to offend anyone's faith, and I ask questions. Like, before I started wearing shorts to church, which is much more comfortable to me, uh, I was making sure, is anybody going to be offended by that, you know? In uh, Monroeville, Alabama, the answer was yes, so I never did wear shorts to, but I asked them, just wanted to be, because I don't think long pants are more holy than short pants. I haven't seen them. Oh, sorry about that, Maddie. <laughs> and who can blame you? Who can blame you? Well, I'll try, but my legs are about as short as they can get. They reach all the way to my hips. That's how I stand up. <laughs> but I mean I don't know I, I guess we all have a lot of work to do in a lot of ways but I can remember when worldwide apostatized and my heart was broken and I felt like my whole world had been unraveled all I I was like a turtle man I just withdrew into my room and it was me and my bible and I was going back through all the literature and I was trying to find is anything that I believe true is any of this true I mean what is solid what can I stand on and it took a couple of years before I was willing to even stick my toe in some other church, you know. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. But I do remember, like, the first note that I wrote. I went to a Baptist church, first time I've ever been in a church that wasn't worldwide at that point. Hey, buddy. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, and that goes in there? I bet you could make, if you froze that, I bet you could make a popsicle out of that. Anyway, uh, I saw this guy, and it wasn't how he was dressed, because he also had a suit. No, don't touch that, baby. Don't do that. Um, it wasn't how he was dressed, 
But it was how he was speaking. It wasn't the style that I was used to. And I wrote in my notes, this dude is way too emotional. Surely he doesn't know what he's... It's frustrating, I know. What do you do if you, if you can't get what you want right away? What happens then? That's probably me in about 80% of my prayers. But, uh, you know, I've been guilty of being judgmental in that way, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And I don't think that that's healthy or good. Um, it's just, it's good for me to note that there's room inside of God's plan. And everybody doesn't get the same calling. Like, if you think about the disciples, those 12, one obviously had to be replaced after Judas lost his place. But they had a job. Their job was to minister to the house of Israel. Jesus gave them instructions on it. And they didn't vary from that, except, obviously, the Lord opened the way to the Gentiles through Peter with the vision that he gave him. But then Paul's commission was to go to the Gentiles. He didn't bear a lot of fruit amongst the Israelites. But the Lord had a different job for him to do. It wasn't the same job. The disciples were not wrong for staying around the Israelites, and Paul was not wrong for going to the Gentiles. And I just find that uh, helpful when I'm looking at things like what we face now and just trying to figure out, you know, what's right? What, what is the standard? Most of it, frankly, is left to our consciences. We have consciences. And the Lord guides and directs us, you know. Um, but you'd be foolish indeed if you looked at somebody like John and, you know, you said to yourself, well, clearly that's not a godly man because he's, he's got to be half crazy. He's all outside of the system and he shouts too much. And there was baptism before he came baptizing um, here in verse 7 when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So uh, baptism existed before John started doing it. It's just that they only baptized non-Israelites. See, you're circumcised into the covenant of Israel. But outsiders, what they call God-fearers, as you read through in the New Testament, you know, uh, you see in Acts 2 there where Peter's addressing the crowd and he lists out the people and he says God-fearers, you know, uh, those people were baptized. That's what the ceremony was for, to show that they were dying to their old way and they were coming in to the Israel way. This is the first time it was associated with uh, forgiveness of sins. But I find this very interesting. Like, this is hard, what he says. He's calling the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers and asking them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say to you, the stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children from Abraham. So he's addressing exactly what baptism was for before. See, they show up as Pharisees. You guys know what they were like. First of all, they had one face in public and another face in private. They dressed up in all sorts of religiosity, you know. They had the high positions. They enjoyed respect from all of the people. You know, it reminds me of being upstairs at the economics department. All you heard in the hallway was doctor, 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 doctor. Uh, and, and they just loved having the adulation and the praise of people. But beneath, I mean, if you look at what Jesus had to say to them, they were just like whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside and putrid on the inside, just death 
rotten, decay, because they were full of murder and jealousy and hatred. But they made a show of being religious. That's why when Jesus uh, pronounces the woes upon them, he calls them hypocrites, and that's a play actor. He's saying you're wearing a mask. That's not really you. No, I see the mask. No, I see that's all smiley and nice, but I see who you are behind that. I see that you make these long prayers, and that looks really righteous when you do that, except I also saw how you stole that house from that widow and left her without any means of support. But, uh, oh, I noticed you got a few new robes, nice horses. Your house looks pretty nice. See, that's so far away from the holiness that they were claiming publicly. So John, uh-oh, how can we fix that? Just like that. So John calls him out, and I find that interesting. Like, you think uh, that if you're going to, no, don't do that. No. Sorry. I know, it's tough. I want what I want when I want it to. I know that feeling. They came out, but they weren't interesting in, interested in repenting. Notice what it said. People were confessing their sins. When they came out, they were convicted. I am sinful. I want to be clean from my sins. Baptism, the way John was doing it, was a death to sin and cleansing. And it was still picturing what Jesus was going to really do. you know. And yet, they're not coming out confessing. You know what they're like. When they come out, they're coming. Maybe they're scoping out what he's doing. Maybe they're jealous of him and they're worried. Man, where are people all going? Probably some of that. They were like that with Jesus. Maybe they didn't want to be seen not taking part of the newest ceremony that looked to be religious. Maybe that's it. But John wasn't nice to them. John said, no, I don't see any fruit of repentance. I don't see that you're repenting at all. I didn't come out here to wet, dry people. I came out here so that people could die to sins. I'm preparing the way for Jesus who is coming. And so he calls them out in a harsh way. You brood of vipers, you show me fruit, meat of repentance. And I find that helpful. Because if you're dealing with a person who has made a habit of wearing a mask, a person who is hypocritical by their nature and they wear religiosity and righteousness on the outside, but that is not their practice then how do you know to what degree you can accept their pronouncement that they're repentant? Well, this gives an insight into that. Show me your deeds. That's the only thing you can count on. If someone has shown that their words are bankrupt over and over again by not performing them or by saying different words from what they do perform, you can't believe them when they say, I'm so sorry. You can't because they do it. They've proven it by a cycle that stretches back over and over again like these Pharisees and Sadducees. So John says, well, show me some fruit then. Show me deeds over time. You've shown me I can't trust your words, but if I see a change in your deeds over time, then I'll lend some credence to that. So, you know, it's not that John the Baptist absolutely forbid them, but it is such that he said, you know, I, I don't believe a thing you say. You have no credibility. But, you know, let me see what your actions are. And then here at the end, verse 10, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. So every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's instructive to me, too, as uh, one 
like the rest of you, I'm called to proclaim the gospel in my personal testimony and sharing what the Lord has said. And there is something of a, I won't say it's a movement, at least it is a trend, let's say, in preaching that would, I'm just going to use Joel Olstein as an example. He said that he doesn't like to talk about sin. You know, he likes to talk about the happy and the good things. Don't we all? I mean, wouldn't we all only like to talk about happy and good things? But I noticed that the way that John the Baptist preaches and the way that Jesus preaches and the way that Paul preaches includes things like the axes laid to the root of the trees. There are warnings involved. He will bring it up. He doesn't just say how much good stuff is in front of you. Good stuff is in front of you. When Jesus is talking to people, literally life and joy unspeakable and pleasures evermore is standing personally in front of you. And yet there are still warnings about if you turn away, what you will find. You know, he still talks about you'll be cast into the fire. Twice in this case, you know, uh, verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. That comes up a little bit later. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We see that fulfilled in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues of fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather wheat to the barn, but he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What does that mean? That's a warning about hell, both times. Chopping down trees and throwing them to the fire. People are the trees. What you do with your life is the fruit. If there's good fruit, Jesus' fruit, then all of those joys and promises, they're all for you. But if not, though... Don't think there's not going to be a time when lives will be cut down and those that have chosen absolutely to refuse Jesus will be cast into the fire. And it's mentioned twice. The same thing with the winnowing fork. That's some of what we go through now as the household of faith. In our lives, these turbulent things, these tests and these trials, that's like being thrown up and being subjected to the wind. If our lives are built on lesser things, then the winds can blow us away. But all of us sitting here are not like that. There's not a person in here who is like that because we've just been through a serious storm. And yet here we are. And I'm not saying by our own strength. I just mean to say, you must be resting your faith where it belongs. And that, that fills me with confidence. But it does instruct me that... In sharing the gospel, it must be balanced if you love people. You, you can't love them more than Jesus did, and Jesus brought it up. You're not going to love them more than John the Baptist did, and John brought it up. So I guess that's enough to be going on with. With that, I'll just open it up to questions and comments. Starting with you, young man. Always. Never go wrong with that. I used to have a Hawaiian shirt in high school. Do you have some? Right. 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 Yeah, no, right? Yeah. 
No, I know. Yeah, you can't do it that way. I had a long, you guys remember Lonnie Finley? So it's not on dress, it's on music, but it's a similar principle. He had come from like a rock and roll background and had a band there in the Atlanta area, and apparently he, was, he won the Battle of the Bands or something. So when we were meeting with him at his house down there, right outside of Atlanta, uh, he started bringing up how, um, we're still not going to play with that, I'm sorry. Some things are just too fancy. You can play with that, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so he would say it has to be this style of singing for it to be holy and good for church. And for him, he was okay with instruments, but there were certain chord progressions, certain volume levels, and certain, like, he literally believed that some rhythms were evil and not worthy of church. Uh, and I didn't do it in front of the group. It was later. We were on the phone. And I just said, Lonnie, you tell me, what is the most holy note? Is it an A or is it a C? Or is it holier on an acoustic guitar or electric guitar? And if so, at what distortion level and what volume is most holy? I'd like to know that. Are drums holy or drums not holy or cymbals holy? I mean, how do we interpret the Psalms? Because I want him to see that what he was proposing is ridiculous. Now, you can say this style of music brings me to a place of worship more. I prefer it. That's fair. We probably all have different musical preferences, you know? I mostly like uh, screamo, you know, deathcore metal for worship. But no, seriously, like everybody will have a different preference, but that's not the difference between what's holy and what's not holy. And basically, you just sort of accommodate a group that you're in and try to hit the sweet spot, offend the fewest and bless the most, right? And I kind of feel like that about clothes, you know? What, did Jesus dress up for the Sabbath or was he wearing his regular stuff? Looks to me like, as I look at it, he wore his regular stuff. Anytime man defines what's holier, you know, you have to be wary of it. And, and you know, we've learned that. Yeah. Way, yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and what's... The yes. What's the word of God say? The word of God say it's more holy than this? Yeah. I had a guy in, again, in Monroeville, uh, Mr. Atkins, that was what his name, wasn't it? Atkins, am I saying that right? Or Atchison. Atkinson, son of Atkins. Anyway, a lot of times when we'd have people on the phone hook up that were, let's just say, more on the edges in terms of the things that they believed, they would say some silly nonsense, and he would just say, chapter and verse, please. <laughs> And that was his way of saying, look, you know, people have opinions, but God is right. You can trust his word. So I don't think there is a style of music that is more holy or more worshipful. You consider the people around you, you know, and I try to do that. Like uh, if I got complaints about this is dressing down, it's a lot more comfortable for me. I would never, by my preference, wear a suit. I would only do it if... That was the best way to bless the most people and to hurt the least number of people. And there are some professions I could take up where it would be expected of me, obviously. Uh, but, you know, what's considered your best dress, your, your best clothes, that yeah, differs in time and culture. Not holy scrubs. Holy scrubs. <laughs> I don't want no scrubs. Well, it seems like a mundane thing, but I'm saying like it is a bit of the heavy lifting that you do. And to me, it seems this, the most salient point is that uh, God's standard matters. 
but our varying standards don't. And it may well be that the guy you're looking at, like he's some kind of a hick or a rube for how he's dressing, maybe he's doing what John the Baptist did, you know? And you don't look at them like they're less mature because they think the way to be holy is to live a, a sort of stoic life of self-discipline. I've, I've gotten away from that the moment I well, read the whole time that they that, that, you know, we all need to be in citizen time and the face of God. But I realize a lot of people like that they want to get the job done so they're not worried about what they're wearing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And they're honorable people. Right. You should be more so than people dressed in the same Right. They just, they're not worried about what they're wearing. They're right. Well, and I mean, you have to take the point from the Pharisees in that nobody dressed better on the outside than them. Their image was flawless. But that's not who they were, though. You know, did I say that right? I can do that. (laughs) But, you know, it didn't, it wasn't beautiful to the Lord. You know, what we dress up in is the righteousness of Jesus and a heart that loves him back. Like, that's beautiful to him, like, that's stunning to him. And so uh, it's not like a focus on the outside. It's not profitable. But we take each other into consideration. You know, we get to live Jesus' life right now as part of the beauty of what the gospel is. And we get to look at his life and everything that we see him do is holiness. Amen. Like his ability, ability to be able to handle the opposite sex, like the woman at the well. That's right. unbelievable. Because yeah. to be honest, when I'm around new women, I'll just be, it's like, it, there's always... How new? Like one week old? Huh? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. When women are, it's just, it's, it's tough. Yeah, you I get it. You see that there's work there because the motivation cannot be pure, but wow, in the life of Jesus, you see his ability to negotiate those things. That's holiness. Right. What about his ability to uh, offer himself when he's just crushed? He goes away because he finds out John the Baptist was killed. He wants to be in a solitude, place of solitude, but then people are there. He's able to offer himself in those yeah. moments. That's yeah. impossible for a human being. No, get away. I have stuff going on. Back up. But yeah. He shows us what's possible, you know? Yeah. Well, the life that he lives is the life we can now live. Amen. Because yeah. it's not a different life. Right. As it turns out, it's him living. I mean, it's Galatians 2.20, right? Yeah. I was well, crucified with so Christ. It goes along with that, too. Accepting the good heart thing. Yeah. Because every time you mess up, it's... It's not mine. Yeah, Yeah, and that's a tough distinction to make. It's still tough for me, but I practice. And I think that... I'm thinking about this stuff constantly now. Motivation behind everything. Dressing, like... Sure. Everything. Sure. All that stuff. And the thing is, if you see yourself... um, If the motivation, if you can see, like, ah, I'm not really comfortable with that. Well, you can actually work on that. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'm going to center myself. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. I don't know how to say it, but you can start adjusting your No. Motivation. Yeah, the I completely agree. Everything. Right. That's why I think that, I'll just speak for myself, <laughs> like, I have a new, a renewed focus slash commitment to being in the Word. I'm always in the Word. But there, 
it can vary by degrees and how present I am in it. In other words, this one kind of being in the Word that's like, well, let me prepare a message so I can tell other people what's what, you know. All right, that's one thing. But getting there and just being in Jesus' presence, letting Him speak to you, looking into that mirror is what it's called in James, seeing, you know, what looks like Jesus, like you said, and what doesn't look like Jesus, and then letting Him wash that and, and change me. That time, like Blake prayed earlier today, having that written on my heart, like I find that I don't have enough time. Like, it, it's gone from... Well, it doesn't matter what the amount of time is. I don't want to really say. I just will say that it's, vir it's verging on obsession. I feel like I can't get enough of it. And the more of it that, get, that I get, the more of it that I want. And my thought life is split pretty evenly between praise and prayer, which again, I always feel like I'm leaving more unsaid than I want. Every time I find out that somebody's having a hard time or there's a need in front of them or whatever, I think, man, I don't pray for them enough, you know? And you can never, like you always run out of time before you run out of subject matter, you know? And I, I think that though this, the time spent doing that, like on the regular, like you do in your journaling and with your praise and your worship and in the Bible, you are being changed. And so that shows up. You don't see it all at once, but it shows up. Well, I just shared this. I'm thinking of the practice throughout life of that of treating Bible time more as like a quota time too. Yeah. And it's like my heart's not open to it. It's like there was good stuff, but I mean, it's like you go through it, you pass through the word enough times, it kind of like things easily, more easily brought to remembrance, and they go, well, let's check that out again. Like ministry of reconciliation, for one, has been on my heart, so I went to that, and I was just so rich without having, um, you know, you know, him and I teach other live together, so we talk about stuff all the time, all right. opportunities. Um, but it's like, what God's trying to do in Christianity, like restoration, restoration, like that focus. And I'm like looking back at that, that now with like, there just seems to be so much more life in that. And uh, I know I'm kind of going off here, but it's like all oh, that quota time and uh, just not treating it right. I'm speaking personally. No, I know what uh, you're saying. Like heart's not open. Did uh, you, you know, know my testimony? I stumble into it because God's always looking for yeah. a window or yeah, a yeah. door into your heart. Right. Again, and it's like, oh, Amen. you know, but it's like trying to just, it's tough because you are going to have to go through the motion sometimes. I've learned that. It's like a mature love relationship. It's not always your honeymoon, you know? Yeah. Like, that's a period of time, but it's not always, like, puppy love. And well, I remember at the beginning of a short time until I met everybody, but I remember that was like, you're right, there are, there are valleys, there are that. You're going to go like, through the I grind, know, son. I did not like that. Um, nobody said it was crusade or anything. It was before. Yeah. But it was kind of like, uh, I didn't like that, that sense of like they were uncomfortable with it. And it's like, it, sure, it's easy to be fired up when your heart was just changed. But I was like, well, I don't want this to end. Uh, no. I was like, the only thing that makes it worth it is that there's deeper stuff to follow. It's not maybe like skyrockets and fireworks so much. Although now it's like appreciating the, the smallest things. Um, no, geez, taking in a moment to ask a question. Really, is there anything too small? Well, no, not for him. The big things. Though, you know, whatever you need to happen financially. Or, you know, Sometimes he's not in the storm, right? It's the still small voice. Yeah, or like, geez, you just you remember I got to make breakfast for the first time forever. Oh, so great. 
made my heart come alive. It really did. Yeah. And it's a breakfast sandwich, for goodness sake. There's really nothing. Man, I mean, ask Moses how important a little bush on fire is. You know, little things. If the Lord is in it, it's not little. But I, I do know that I, I have to push myself. I, I'm not always happy that I'm open in the Word. But I will, I will act my way into feeling it. I'm not, does that make sense to y'all? Like, and I'm not, I'm not kicking myself anymore. I used to. I would get so worked up about, oh, my heart's not in it. I'm just sitting here and may as well go. Not doing that, man. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to spend my time with the Lord. I'm going to listen to and think about what he says. I'm going to share the stuff that's on my heart. And I'm going to try as much as, as much as I have the power within me to open it. I'm going to try to give it to him, you know. And it will it will grow over time it cannot fail and then what sandy was saying you'll be the person that you're supposed to be when the lord sends somebody you know into your path it's not a speech that you wrote down you know it's not a technique that you learned in the latest self-help book it's not jesus is literally in you the power of the holy spirit is being exuded from you and people will receive from the lord what you've been faithful to let him put in there. And that's also very encouraging to me. I guess we're about at food time, unless somebody has something else. No? Michael, would you close for us, please? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful to just be your children. Lord, we just can never thank you enough for this life that you've given us, even though there are difficult things and there are wrongs in this world, we are grateful for all the beauty that you've made, for the blessings that we have to be able to love each other and to have fellowship with each other and with you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your constant ministering to us, especially on the Sabbath. Thank you for restoring us and for giving us hope. Thank you for the way that you always provide. Lord, we thank you so much for this food and just for blessing us to be able to have a meal together. Just ask your blessing on it and on the rest of this day, Lord. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.